It is a joy for Jeannie and me to be with you here today and to worship with you in these several services while some others are going on on the campus as well. This is our first time to worship with you in the church, but not the first time that you've been on our radar screen, as uh, has already been pointed out in uh, some other ways. But you may not know that Jim Harnish and I were in seminary together. Um, Jim and Marsha and Jeannie and I became friends along with, uh, with uh, his twin brother Jack, who you may also know as well. And those, those were great days. And when we discovered that uh, he had been appointed here many years ago now, we got interested in following uh, along with what was happening at Hyde Park. And then, as uh, you've already heard this morning, McGray said that Vicki Walker and Debbie Casanzio were students. I jokingly said, because Vicki uh, was in the 930 service you know, presiding, uh, I'll say it about uh, Debbie too. They were the only two people we ever admitted as children. Uh, it, um, it was a very rare thing that, uh, that we did. Uh, you know, the accrediting agencies normally ask for people in master's degree programs to be adults, but uh, we made exceptions in their case, and that's why, that, that's why I look so much older than, than they do. That's absolutely true, unfortunately, but we'll move on from there. And then, as McGray said, I had the opportunity to be with him on the Board of Ordained Ministry. And most recently, and I mean this just really uh, out of a sense of uh, gladness, really, uh, he and I have really teamed up on the five marks of a Methodist. Uh, you need to be aware of the guide that he's written to go along with that little book and also the DVDs that he talked about. But this has given McGray and me a chance to become even closer in our friendship. And so the, the opportunity to be here today, I know some others, Justin and uh, some others as well. I'm sure I'm leaving somebody out in this moment of trying to remember. But this is a happy day for Jeannie and me to come and to see the good ministry that's going on in this church and to have the opportunity to, to spend these uh, morning services with you. Thank you for being here today. I was Thinking about the, um, uh, the um, what is it, 10K and 15K and other stuff that's going on. We have a, we have a professor uh, at uh, Asbury who, who runs in marathons. And one day I asked him, I said, Daryl, I've, I've kind of forgotten. You know, remind me how long a marathon is. And I believe, if I remember the right, he said something like 27 miles, something like that. And I thought for a minute and I said, yep, I've... I've, I think I've run 27 miles in, in my life, um, especially if you factor in the middle school because Coach you know, Middleton used to drop us off on the edge of town and make us run five or six miles back in at the last period of school. So I think if you factor all that in, I'm probably up around 24, 25, um, maybe 28, 29 to be you know, a little generous with, with my running skills. Um, I, I hope there's something really good at the finish line to have run that far and not have anything there. Kind of anyway, I'll I'll move on. The text was very brief today, uh, but it's actually even briefer because we we could have said rejoice always. That's what Paul says. It's in the text in the midst of some of these other things. And we are here to think about joy today. Those of you who are involved in the little study of the book, um, you will know that after the first mark that John Wesley has on the Methodist uh, knows the love of God, then he moves very quickly to that second mark, the mark of joy. But it's sort of my job today to, to try to, to answer the question, why is joy the first thing you think about 
after you've thought about love. Why is joy the first thing that follows love? Let's walk down that trail together for a few minutes this morning. On May the 13th, 1373, Julian of Norwich had 16 rapid-fire encounters with God. Now, there's only 24 hours in a day. So she had 16 profound encounters with God in the span of 24 hours. Those encounters with God were so uh, influential in her life, so transforming in her life, that she spent the next 20 years meditating on them. Going back over each one again and again and again until 20 years later, she finally sat down in writing a devotional classic that we call today Revelation of Divine Love. 16 revelations of the love of God that flooded her life in the span of one day. When she stepped back to summarize those 16 revelations in one word, she summarized it with the word joy. All of them were about joy in one way or another. We're making the Lenten journey. We're moving from ashes to action. And what we want to think about today is that we move from ashes to action with joy. But why? Well, for one reason, joy is the first evidence that we have experienced the love of God. Joy is the first evidence that we've experienced the love of God. Think about this in your own life. Maybe you were in elementary school or maybe somebody moved in across the street and you got to know somebody in your class or somebody in your neighborhood and you thought to yourself as a child, uh, you know, I think we could be friends. Maybe it was because you shared the same uh, interest in sports or maybe it was because when you, when you visited with each other, you just kind of clicked And you thought to yourself, I think I'm in the early stages of making a friend. And there was something joyful about that, isn't it? Because we all like to be in fellowship, in relationship with somebody. We like to make friends and have friends and to be a friend to other people. And when we're engaged in that kind of experience, it's an experience of joy. Ah, but there's something even more than that. Some of us have seen that person across the crowded room. And we said to ourselves, I think I might want to get to know this person better. I think I might want to get to know him better. I think I might want to get to know her better. Jeannie and I saw each other for the first time 46 years ago. We met on a blind date, and I've been blind with love ever since. And that was an experience of joy, to to come to believe that, that I had met the person who would be my wife until I died. Love follows joy naturally, doesn't it? I should say it the other way around. Joy follows love, doesn't it? Joy follows the experience of love because we are made for those experiences of love. And when we make them as friends and when we make them as family members, it's an experience of joy. John Wesley believed that holiness and happiness go together. In fact, he believed that if you didn't have happiness, you probably didn't have holiness. Uh, He believed that if you didn't have happiness, uh, that holiness was little other than sour godliness, which he called the devil's religion. 
Now, we've sung some songs today in the contemporary services and some even here today in which we have not always been talking about easy things or happy times. And so it's very important for us to understand that that joy is not rising and falling with the circumstances of our life. To use basketball analogy, is, is, is joy only allowed to play on the court when everything's going well? Is, is joy only allowed to dribble the ball and, and make some shots when, uh, when, when circumstances are favorable? No. Because joy is rooted in grace, not circumstance. Joy is rooted in the unquestionable love of God that's with us always, even to the end of the age. Now, some of us knew that as children. When we learn from our parents, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then we came to that passage, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff comforted me. Some of us many, many years ago discovered that the joy that we're talking about today is not circumstantial, does not rise and fall with our circumstances or with the stock market or with anything else that's in our lives. And that's very important, folks, because we're only one diagnosis away from having our lives take turns we never thought they might take. You may have gotten up this morning planning your day, and you're only one phone call away from ending your day far differently than you thought you might have ended it. But through it all, there can be joy because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Joy is the first evidence that we have experienced the love of God. The second thing is that that joy is the comprehensive response that we make to the love of God. Joy is the comprehensive response that we make to the love of God. As the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, as wave after wave of grace of the Holy Spirit enters into our lives, we come to understand that we are God's beloved. We are God's beloved daughters. We are God's beloved sons in whom God is well pleased. Now, I don't know how easy that is for you to hear this morning, much less accept, much less absorb into your life, because I don't know how many times you've been told that you were not lovable. I don't know how many times you may have felt unlovable. I don't know how many times you've been set aside so that somebody else in your family or in your business could, could get an accolade or a promotion or attention that, that didn't go your way. There's so many things that can happen to us as we live out our lives that can make it hard for us to really believe that we are God's beloved sons and daughters. But if we believe John 3.16 that says, for God so loved the world then surely that must mean me and that that must mean you. Your parents may have said oops when they found out you were going to be born, but God has never said oops. 
God has never looked upon any man or woman in this world as an afterthought or as a mistake. You are God's beloved son. You are God's beloved daughter. And the reason I say that this way is because out of that experience is the response of joy. Out of that experience of love is the response of gratitude where we say to God, thank you. Because for some of us, Knowing that we're loved by God may be the only direct source of love that we've experienced in our lifetime. I had the opportunity decades ago now to host Dr. Charles L. Allen. He was coming into Wilmore to be one of the featured speakers at the minister's conference. And the president assigned Jeannie and me to host Dr. Allen for a whole week. He came over to our house and played with our kids. And it was just a wonderful week that we spent with Charles L. Allen. Now, uh, it's very likely that some of you say, I don't have any idea who you're talking about. Well, at the time, he was the pastor of First United Methodist Church in Houston, Texas. And if you're as old as I am, you may have read some of his books. He was kind of the Norman Vincent Peale of his day, always upbeat, always positive, always talking about the love and the grace and the mercy of God. And I had read most of his books, and so I was looking forward to having the, the chance to be with him for an entire week. One of the things Dr. Allen liked to do was to take a little walk uh, every afternoon. He even did this in the city of Houston. He would, he would leave the church and walk around in the neighborhood and in the businesses, meeting people and saying hello and all that kind of stuff. Well, he liked to do that in the afternoon, so I, he and I would go walking. Now, now, Dr. Allen was from Georgia, and so he was very tall and thin. If you ever read the comic strip Mutt and Jeff, he was, he was, he was, the, he was the one who was up in the, in the, in the tall timber. In fact, you know, on a cloudy day in Kentucky, I couldn't even see his face. He was up there, he was up there somewhere, and, and, and I don't have to tell you about me, I was, I was down here. Now, he was in Texas, and I was born in Texas, but you wouldn't have thought that if you'd seen the two of us together. Most people look at me and think, Rhode Island. But there, there we were, we were walking along together, and I had the opportunity all week long to talk to him about all sorts of things. And I asked him one day, Dr. Allen, what's the number one problem that you've had to deal with over the years of your ministry? Now, I thought he was going to say, oh, Steve, I've been a pastor for so long and I've dealt with so many different kinds of things. There is no way that I could limit it to one. But that's not what he said. Just like that, he responded, the number one problem I've had to deal with over the years of my ministry are the people who think God is mad at them. What do you think? What do you think? Joy is the expression that the heart makes when it knows that God is not mad at us. That God doesn't love us just because that's God's job to love everybody. That God doesn't love us just because God's obligated on any given day to sort of be nice to everyone. God doesn't love us just, just because, uh, just, just because uh, he's, he's motivated to love. God loves this morning, dear ones, loves you because God's madly in love with you. Now, all I've come to do today is to say that when that really washes over you, when you really recognize that you're God's beloved son and you're God's beloved daughter, out of that comes gratitude. 
Out of that comes thankfulness. And you say, thank you, God. That's our first response to knowing how deeply we're loved by God. Ah, but it goes on from there. When you really realize that you're God's beloved daughter and God's beloved son, then you realize everyone else is too. Because we're all made in the image of God. This is not something that's just me and God. Every one of you here are God's beloved son, God's beloved daughter. And I'm looking out onto the faces of several hundred people in this place who are God's beloved. Thomas Merton was a monk at the Abbey of Gethsemane for many, many years until he died unexpectedly. And the Abbey of Gethsemane was, was very close to the, to the campus where I taught in Kentucky. So I would take students out to Gethsemane and we would uh, pay our respects to Merton's grave and we would read his writings and learn more about the influence of this man. I'm going to guess some of you have probably read or are reading Thomas Merton as, as part of your spiritual journey. Well, one day Merton was given the opportunity to leave the monastery and go into Louisville, Kentucky. The, the abbot would let the monks do that every now and then just so they could get out of the cloistered environment. So Merton made his little trip into Louisville to run whatever errands the abbot was asking him to run. And when he got to the corner of Fourth and Walnut, and I say that because he writes it about it that way in his book, uh, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, he comes to Fourth and Walnut. And I've actually had the chance to stand right at that intersection of those two streets thinking, wow, I'm standing right where Thomas Merton was when he wrote this. And this is what he said, at the corner of Fourth and Walnut... I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people. That we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. Let me say that again. That we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. He goes on and writes some more and at the very end he says... There is no way to tell people that they are walking around shining like the sun. You're blinding me this morning. You're blinding me this morning because all of you are walking around shining like the sun because you are God's beloved sons and God's beloved daughters. And so you see the joy that wells up in me when I realize that I'm one of those people and the joy that wells up in me when I realize that you are those people too is great joy. Joy is the comprehensive response, the internal and external response that we make when we know that we're God's beloved. One more thing. Joy is the motivating factor for our service. Joy is the motivating factor for our service. Some of you may know the name Frank Laubach. He's known in two areas. He's known first as the father of the American literacy movement. And in church circles, he's known as a missionary to Africa. Whether you know him one way or the other, you'd be interested to know that Frank Laubach began every morning with this prayer. Lord, what are you doing in the world today that I can help you with? I love that prayer. And I love it because it's such a wise prayer. It acknowledges that God is doing some things in the world, thank you very much, that God doesn't need your help with. 
Lord, what are you doing in the world that I can help you with? Because there's a lot that God's doing in the world that God's going to say, I'm going to ask somebody else to do that one. You ask any pastor and they'll be quick to tell you that some of the hardest people to deal with are the people who think they're supposed to be at the church every time the doors are open. And even worse is if they think they're supposed to be at the church every time the door is open so that they can be in charge of something. (laughs) So, Frank Laubach comes along and says, Lord, what are you doing in the world today that I can help you with? Because I know there's a lot you're doing in the world today that you're going to excuse me from having to be personally responsible and you're going to choose somebody else to do those things. That's a very wise prayer. But connected with it is also the wisdom of saying, but I have a place to stand and I have a role to play. Lord, what are you doing in the world today that I can help you with? What are you doing in the world today that you are beckoning me to become part of? I was uh, sharing along these lines in Orlando about a year ago in an Episcopalian church. It was a men's group, a Wednesday night men's group. And when I finished, I I noticed there was one man standing over at the side waiting for me to gather my notes and get ready to leave. And I thought he was the person that had been designated to turn out the lights and lock the door. So I thought, well, I better get out of here as fast as I can. He needs to get home to his family. So I even gathered up my stuff even quicker than I might have ordinarily. And I sort of made a beeline for the door. And I noticed he followed me and he didn't turn out the lights or lock the door. So I stopped and, and said, uh, I'm sorry, uh, were you waiting to, to talk with me? And he said, well, as a matter of fact, yes, I, I was. And I said, well, great. I said, he, he said, let me walk you to your car. I said, great, let's do it. So we walked probably about a half a block to the car, and this is what he told me. He said he was confirmed as a member of the Episcopalian Church when he was 12 years old. Now, I don't know how old he was, so I'm going to invent the math that I can hold in my head. Let's say that he was 52. So that means he'd been a member of that church 40 years, all right? That, that I can remember. Uh, he'd been a member of that church 40 years. He went on to tell me that he'd been a practicing attorney downtown in a law firm in Orlando for 25 years, okay? 40 years member of the church, 25 years practicing attorney. And then he said this, tonight is the first night of my life that I ever connected those two things. And then without me saying anything, he went on. He said, you know, tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, I'm going to be meeting with a couple who are having to file for bankruptcy. And it's my job to help them work out the legalities of what it means to to be broke. And then at 10 o'clock, I'm going to be meeting with a couple whose marriage is falling apart. And my job is going to be help them to work out the legalities of how to separate their estates and their holdings so that one person doesn't take advantage of the other. And he said, Steve, tomorrow morning's the first day I'm going to realize that I'm sitting there as a representative of Jesus Christ. Where, do you, where are you going to be this time tomorrow? When you get up in the morning and you head off to that place that uh, is so familiar to you, you could almost get there blindfolded. 
When, when, when you do the thing that's become so routine for you that uh, you can do it almost without thinking. When, when, when you're so good at something uh, that you hardly even think about all the skills and time and effort it took to, to get good at it. Are you also going to be standing there realizing that you're there in the name of Jesus? Now, now, folks, what I'm saying this morning is that when that really dawns on you, that ought to be a moment of joy. That, that, that ought to be a moment when you understand that God has not asked you to sit in the grandstands while a team of Christian professionals plays the game. That, that ought to be a time when you understand what Laubach understood, that every morning you can get up and pray, Lord, what are you doing in the world today that I can help you with? It may be managing a second grade classroom and trying to have education instead of chaos. It may be doing a work like the lawyer described to me. It may be being a homemaker so that your children can feel loved and safe and secure as long as they're inside the walls of your house. What are you doing tomorrow? Do it in the name of Jesus and do it out of joy for having the opportunity to have a place to stand and a role to play in what God is doing in the world day after day after day after day. We used to sing a little chorus. It's dated now, but it was called Joy is the Flag Flown High from the Castle of My Heart. It goes like this. Joy is the flag flown high from the castle of my heart. The castle of my heart. The castle of my heart. Joy is the flag flown high from the castle of my heart. For the king is in residence there. You can get from ashes to action with joy. Amen.